Welcome, this is Lisa, where we go inside addiction to raise your level of consciousness. Welcome Liv to the Lisa podcast, where we go inside addiction to raise our audience's level of consciousness. Now, welcome to the podcast, and I just wondered if you could start us off by just telling us a bit about what your sort of definition of addiction is. Thanks for having me. Um, my gosh, my my definition has really evolved over the years. You know, initially it was it was AA's definition of a spiritual malady, and, and I don't believe that to be true for me anymore. I see that addiction as a coping mechanism, and you know, a maladaptive one at that. So, um, you know, I used it to cope with. A number of things that were I was you know struggling with as I was growing up: depression, anxiety, um, struggling to fit in. We moved a lot in the UK, and you know I, I, I now understand, having had quite a bit of therapy, that um, actually what preceded my addiction was complex trauma. So I used alcohol and drugs to cope. Um, and I, you know, I, I see it. I see it in a very different light today. You know, I don't see it as something that, you know, while I feel sad about that amount of time that I see as wasted, you know, even though it wasn't, um, I still see it as a coping mechanism. Yeah, and just to rewind a bit, um, like you said, it's kind of evolved addiction, your opinion of yourself, and therapy and addiction, all that fun stuff. But if we go back to the beginning, where would you yeah. kind of define the beginning and what was that like for you? The beginning of recovery? Um, the beginning of your kind of life and when things started to kind of happen. Um, yeah, when you were sort of growing up and how you kind of um, yeah became addicted. Yeah. Um, well, I, I was born in the US um, and then left at the age of three to get moved to England. Um, it's kind of funny because now I live back in the US, but um, it's like I've gone full circle. Um, and that move, you know, I was three, four years old, and that was really traumatic. And I didn't understand that at the time. So I don't have very much memory of my childhood at all. Um, I really start to remember around my teenage years, which is when I started drinking, um, around 12 or 13 years old, and smoking weed, and then it very quickly progressed to speed and um you know alcohol was the, the constant throughout um i don't believe in the term functioning you know person with addiction i because i think that there is no you know you might you might pretend to be functioning but you're still <laughs> using in the background to cope with life so that's not an idea of functionality to me um but as far as that definition goes, you know, I guess you could say that I was able to get a degree, you know, go to college and um, go through the, um, you know, the kind of functions of life. Um, so I graduated, I moved to Manchester and my drinking just got worse, you know, as I moved out of home and had more freedom didn't really have a coping strategy for social life or for life as a whole. You know, I had very stressful jobs. So it, my addiction just progressed um, and, and progressed. And I did a lot of things that I think I wouldn't do. Um, and, 
32, I reached the stage where I just couldn't take it anymore. You know, I had one epic binge. I drank 14 bottles of wine in one weekend. And I just re- reached rock bottom. Um, and I reached out for some help and then found recovery in AA for the first five years. Um, and I, you know, I still identify with elements of AA. You know, I believe that... Um, you know, I had reached a point where I was drinking that I'd become powerless over alcohol, but I don't believe I'm powerless anymore. Um, you know, and, and the spiritual value I don't really align with. Um, but at the time, I needed that structure. I needed any structure to help me with recovery. Yeah. And like I say, that structure was important at that time. And when you kind of hit that rock bottom and have had that binge on the 14 bottles of wine what was that like for you and what kind of shifted and how did you get into recovery um it, it was awful I mean I'd lost my job I my family had kind of cut me off I lost a lot of friends because at that point in my using I was completely isolated you know because I, I was just like a fall down every time I drank so it was safer for me to be at home it was awful you know I, I had no memory of what happened the night before I'd wake up and I'd check if I was covered in bruises if I hurt myself I'd check through my phone to see what I'd done the night before so it was just this immense amount of shame and um just feeling completely out of control um and I I kind of I really struggle it's it's funny you asked this question because I wrote about it this week and you know I've spent the last eight and a half years in recovery trying to figure out what happened at that moment that I decided to get help and I guess the only thing that I can put my finger on is that I fully accepted that I could no longer be in denial about the quantity and the excess of my using and how it just wasn't helping my life and I was really faced with two decisions you know end my life which would happen very soon if I continued to drink in the way that I was or get some help um and I tried to do it alone so many times and it just didn't work so I knew I had to do something different and a family member had been to AA and had shown me that that was an option um and in Manchester there are such limited options for recovery. You know, it's very 12-step dominated. So that's what I did. Yeah. And when you say you tried some things on your own before you got to that point, what were some of the things that you tried? Um, I tried to use exercise, you know, and healthy eating as a means of moderating use. Um, I tried not drinking at all. I tried um, budgeting my money so that I didn't have any money to spend on alcohol. That didn't work because I just sold my stuff. Um, I manipulated people for money, for alcohol. You know, I, I did all the things, um, you know, to try and stop all the detoxes, all the diets. And, yeah, I just I couldn't do it alone. Yeah. And you got to that point where... You went to, like you say, that kind of AA and you got to that point. How was that for you getting there? And, yeah, what would, what did that look like? Going to AA felt awful <laughs> on one hand. You know, it felt like I think AA has this reputation of being, you know, old men who have a really bad problem with alcohol, which is true to some extent. But, 
it's not that's not what the fellowship looks like it is male dominated but um you know it includes young people and there were people my age and I was surprised by that um so while I you know my my first sponsor said that I just kind of slumped down in the shower and announced my name and that I was new and she said I just looked so totally defeated and that's how I felt but by the end of that meeting I had a sense of hope you know there were people who told my story or stories similar to mine uh, especially around the not being able to stop and trying everything to stop and yet it was only once they, they found a solution that they proposed that they found recovery. So, you know, there were elements of it that I didn't identify with, you know, the use of the word God and um, it being a spiritual program. But at that point, I was willing to just swallow my doubts and just try it because I was so desperate. So I, I left that meeting having such a sense of hope. And actually, I haven't had a drink since that meeting. Yeah. Wow, that's so, amazing. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's, it is really amazing when you think about it, because I tried so many things for so many years. And then I started drinking at 12, 13, up to the age of 32. That's, that's a long time. Um, and then to just suddenly start was amazing to me. Yeah. And how did you feel about the fear of who you'd be without drink? Um, that's a really good question. I, I don't know, I'm not sure if I feared who I would be. I feared how I would cope. Because, you know, at that point, I saw alcohol as a coping strategy. And, you know, it kind of... And I didn't understand this actually until I moved to America. But my nervous system was so dysregulated because of my complex trauma that I I no longer had that. So, you know, there was, you could say I was white knuckling it for a lot of years in AA. You know, I just felt so awful. You know, whilst there was the reprieve of not waking up hungover every day, which was great, and having a little bit more energy to engage in life and having having a life right because before it was in existence it was tough yeah so so it wasn't yeah it wasn't fear of who I'd become but fear of how I'd cope and I did struggle um but I didn't struggle enough to go back to drinking so I guess I coped <laughs> yeah and that's how I view people with substitutes disorders as actually you know they're highly stigmatized but I I really think that we don't realise the power that we have because we coped and survived for so long. You know, that's actually a strength. It might be a maladaptive coping strategy, but it worked to keep us safe enough to find recovery. Yeah. And when you were kind of in recovery, what did that journey look like going through recovery? Did you use any particular tools or anything in mind? Um, yeah, recovery, recovery has really changed over the last... Um, mostly over the last three and a half years, but the first five um, was 12 steps, you know, and I did those in AA and NA, and and then I started to approach mindfulness, and then I started working with a health coach to integrate more healthy living, because I really struggled with food and recovery, and understanding what I do now, I understand that the brain chemistry is completely out of whack, 
for people who find recovery and it takes a long time for that to regulate and if you add complex trauma into that you know you're just going to feel all over the place it's going to feel like you're eating sugar you know all the time then shooting coffee you know it's just it 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 was really tough um so mindful meditation really helped um healthy eating help regulate you know my blood sugar more effectively um and and then when I moved to America, I started going to refuge recovery, and then um, and then I started therapy. And therapy has been my go-to for recovery over the last three and a half years. And in fact, that has been far superior to anything I've ever done. Um, and what that looks like today is actually somatic experiencing because. I believe recovery can't live up here, you know. Um, I think it needs to be a holistic approach, um, certainly for me, because you know you got to be able to regulate and cope with what's going on in your body. And I think people with substance use disorder are so used to disassociating from their body and from their environment that recovery has to be a process of reintegration. Yeah. And um, you mentioned somatic experiencing, which I want to touch on a bit later, but just in terms of people that have never been to therapy or don't know what therapy is, how would you yeah. kind of describe therapy to them? Um, I would describe therapy as a one-to-one interaction, although there can be group therapy too, but for me it was one-to-one therapy, with a trained, licensed therapist who had experience in trauma. I'd had therapy in the UK, in Manchester, and it was more CBT therapy, and that didn't work for me, um, because I needed to be able to access what happened to me in order to be able to renegotiate that situation and move on. So what that looked like in practice was talking about my experiences, establishing you know, there's, there's a process in therapy where you have to first establish a sense of safety with a therapist. So the therapist needs to know that you have coping strategies and they will help you to develop those so that when you do start to talk about trauma, that you, you were able to cope. Um, so that was my experience of therapy. Uh, and, and also, you know, I, I find it so useful to just have that dedicated hour every week to just sit down and say, this is what's happening for me. And even if the person doesn't respond, although I don't like it when that happens, I feel like I hated it at first. I'm like, how does that make you feel? You're like, can you just tell me what's happening? Because <laughs> it was really helpful for me to have that feedback, you know, especially when... You come from the 12-step program where, and I really want to emphasize, I am not anti-12-step. I, I believe it is a valid pathway of recovery. It just worked out that it wasn't for me in the end. Um, but when you come from a, a program that emphasizes defects and what's wrong with you, it, it, it's really helpful to see that actually these aren't weaknesses. These are things that you use to cope, and we can strengthen those. And... You know, to, to lead some more um, self-directed and, you know, to help you develop autonomy and agency. You know, I don't believe that I'm powerless over drugs. I don't believe that if I go to a supermarket that alcohol is going to jump off the shelf and it's my shopping basket. <laughs> I don't believe that. Um, so, yeah, therapy has been amazing. Yeah. 
And yeah, like you say, therapy and counselling can be awesome tools to use in order to help out with recovery. And you did mention a word, somatic experiencing. I just wondered if you could tell us a bit about that and how you find it. I find that I've had more breakthroughs in somatic experiencing in the first session than I did in the last two years of therapy. Um, because for me, and you know, this is well known now, that trauma is stored in the body. So, you know, if you're uh, um, struggling in recovery or struggling to find recovery, it could be that you are not really integrated into your body and you're not and, and when I first started doing it I felt so uncomfortable so what it looked like was just kind of experiencing like bodily sensations like how how do I feel how am I breathing how where do I feel the sensation and what does it feel and sound and look like and it blew my mind I think it's amazing so yeah, I work with a somatic experiencing coach now. Um, was weekly, it's now every other week to just experience what's happening in my body. And I meet them on a Friday, so you know I have a tendency in my job, especially the writer. And now that I'm at grad school and doing all the stuff that I do, to just live up here a lot of the time. And you know, I get to the end of the week, and I'm like, I'm exhausted. And you'll just get me to just sit and wait for my body to recalibrate. And it's the most simple but powerful thing. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and almost like, like you're saying, kind of person-centred when a therapist doesn't really say anything back to you and you just want the answers. Sometimes yeah. that silence has the power. Um, it and... does. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> Although it's super annoying. And as the client, you're like, just it tell does. me. And actually, I had a therapist in Portland that was so helpful to give me a lot of answers, you know, and that, yeah, I'm a really solution-oriented person, so I really like to know the intellectual side of things, so she gave me loads of books to read, which was just amazing to me. Um, And then, you know, as part of my process, I'm really lucky that I started writing because that enables me to process, you know, that is one of my main tools. So I'll, you know, I'll pitch, oh, I've just noticed that this is happening in me. And if it's accepted, I can then write about it. And as I write, it's a way of integrating that and processing it. So Yeah. No, that's really awesome. And yeah, when you look back over your journey and recovery, is there any parts that really stand out to you? Oh, that's a tough question. Um, yeah, I guess I guess the the beginning of like you know removing alcohol. You know, I wasn't really taking that many drugs at that time, so really removing alcohol and any any strategy to cope was like, you know, I was suddenly dropped into this new world. <laughs> Everything was really bright and loud and it was too much. And then it just felt like I had a completely different life and I was a new person. Um, and today I feel like I am a completely different person to who I was then. You know, live back then was just numb, 
didn't know who she was, how to cope, where she fit in the world. It just felt completely lost and had no kind of anger. Um, so I guess that was a major, a major point. And I, another major shift was around the two, three year mark when I realised that I just was feeling like crap in recovery and that this isn't what I want my recovery to look like. So I made a change there and I started my blog and um, I started writing about recovery. And that's really when recovery took off for me and there was a new dimension to it. And that was like, oh, this feels like this is something that I can sustain and that I want because really sitting in church basements and talking about what was wrong with me was only marginally better than drinking. <laughs> it wasn't really, I was like, I'm going to do this the rest of my life, seriously? Um, so I, it's like I hit this major depression. I was like, this isn't what, this isn't, no, I don't want to hear about your washing machine or your defective relationship or, you know, like, seriously. Um, and, so, yeah, that was a major point. And then had I not done that, I wouldn't have. Um, it's so funny to talk about this because I, I wrote this blog yesterday and I wrote it for a woman who had contacted me when I started my blog in 2014. And she said, I love your writing. So this is a woman in Michigan, in America, contacted me in Manchester, read my work, said, would you write for us and we'll pay you? And that blew my mind. And then, you know, eight and a half years later, she contacted me and said, would you mind writing about the evolution of your recovery? And so I've, I've been processing that this week. And and I guess it was, the pivotal moment was her believing in me, her believing in my capacity and my abilities and capabilities. And that really spurred me on to, you know, to think, well, why don't I just move to America? And that, I guess that was the last kind of pivotal moment in my recovery. It was the craziest, well, I probably shouldn't use that word today, but the most mind-blowing thing I've ever done. Yeah. You know, I didn't have anywhere to live. I didn't know anyone there. didn't have a job, even though I had the prospects of writing. And then here I am, nearly four years later, I bought a house, I have a dog. And I just started grad school, and I've been writing that whole time. Yeah, no, it sounds amazing. And one thing I really get from your story and that I'm hearing is this idea of, like you say, being more than just going to meetings and being yeah. in the same thing with the same labels. You know, my name's Luke and I'm an addict and I'll be in this meeting for the rest of my life. Right. I've got no meaning. And like you say, I love the way you put it, it's marginally better than, than just being drinking and using drugs. It's just right. marginally better. I don't want to be here listening to your washing machine. I want more. I need, I need that meaning right. in my life. And that's the thing that we miss is that meaning, that focus, those kind of purpose. reasons bigger than ourselves, that sense of purpose to yeah. really live. And, you know, yeah. to just understand that just because we came from that place doesn't mean we can evolve much further past it. Um, mm. And I think that's really important. And I do think we get stuck with a lot of these labels like addict. And I just yeah. wondered your opinion and thoughts on labels and how that kind of impacts us. I think that these labels are seen as empowering within peer recovery groups, but the reality is outside of groups. 
they're disempowering and stigmatizing and I only really learned that when I moved to the US and I left all steps um, and I became friends with the free recovery scientists who would study the impacts of these words and they were able to show that it marginalizes us, it, it negatively affects people's view of us and it affects the quality and even the access to treatment that we deserve. So using those words just perpetuates this belief and ideology that addiction is a moral failing whereas if we medicalize it because it is a medical condition and we say substance use disorder and use person-centered language then we're more likely to get fairer treatment and be considered a person rather than what we've been doing i think that's the biggest problem with saying i'm an addict because all it does is focus on one aspect of behavior when you were really suffering um whereas we see substance use disorder we see it like any other chronic condition that needs treatment and response to treatment i think that's a really crucial point so i don't identify with those labels anymore i in fact you know i've actually i do talk about being in recovery you know and i in my writing i'm very open about it some of my writing is based on my blogs out there but you know, it's not something I, um, it's not an identity. It's, it's really interesting because um, Carly Benson said that this week, you know, on social media, that, you know, sobriety is not your identity. And I think it is for a lot of people. Um, and it was mine for a very long time. But I don't define myself by that anymore. I see that I live, and that is one aspect of, of who I am. You know, that's the foundation on which I live my life and I prosper in all areas of my life. You know, it's, yeah, that's that's how I consider it. And, and I still struggle with openly saying it in some places because I do see the treated differently. Um, although I just started grad school last week, so I'm... I really want to change that reading list and update it because <laughs> it's a little outdated. Um, I've been waiting for the right opportunity to do that because it, it is going to out, out me, you know. And I, I would really like the opportunity to see how people talk about substance use disorder when they don't know that someone in that group have it. Yeah, no, it's interesting to run those kind of social experiments. Um, and yeah. like I say, to see yourself as more than just that, like when you just go to meetings every day and you're just like, oh, I'm in recovery, and that's just who you are, and it becomes your identity. I'm an addict, and I'm just in recovery, and yeah. that's it. And it's just yeah. recognising you're so much more than that, you know, yeah. and you're just amazing, all of us are, and we're just more than yeah. an addict. We're more than someone in recovery. Um, yeah. And... Yeah, that it's okay not to always feel the need to kind of be sort of identified by that or get your significance by that. Yeah, and I think the problem occurs because there is this miscommunication around the word humility because I think humility in the rooms is seen as keeping you small, you know, and and being humble. When in fact, you know, actually my very first sponsor said to me, 
Humility is everything in its right size. So there is no, and if you're using that definition, there is nothing wrong with thinking, I need more purpose and passion in my life, and I'm going to go out and get that. Whereas the miscommunication aspects of Tom's set will be like, no, you need to stay in your shitty job, in the church basement, focusing on your defects so that you don't let your ego take over and think that you're more than recovery. When in fact, I would argue that you are. <laughs> you know, it keeps you small and it keeps you thinking that you're not capable. And I, I don't think that's helpful. Yeah. And like you say, it makes you think you're not capable and that's not helpful. Um, no. It can be, you know, part of your identity, but it doesn't have to be all of your identity. No. No, exactly. Yeah. And just in terms of your blog and everything else you've been doing in recovery, how has that been going? I wonder if you could tell us a bit about that. Um, well, and hard. <laughs> um, you know... Moving to the States at the same time as starting a business was the hardest thing I've ever done. It was harder than getting sober. You know, it was massively dysregulating. Because um, it was, you know, I thought, well, I'm a dual citizen. You know, I'd been to the States in the summer. I you know how America works. I had no idea how America works. I used to find myself in the supermarket going, where are the eggs? <laughs> They put the eggs in the fridge over here, right? And all the vegetables are called different names. And why spice is so expensive? Uh, so, and that that was literally my experience in every aspect of my life. Imagine trying to navigate health insurance when you come from England and you can just go to a GP or you can go to the hospital. Here, you know, I'd been here for two months. I fell off my bike and broke my arm. And, and I, I got, got off my bike and cycled home because I didn't know what to do. So imagine, like, trying to understand all of these systems and processes and then starting a business as well. It was just, you know, it was the best, but it was also the hardest thing I've done. You know, being able to sit in a coffee shop and write, you know, and be like, yeah, I'm a writer, this awesome i get to write about my experiences and drink coffee this is awesome but then other times it was really hard because you know i didn't have the connection that you have in a work situation as much as i hated working for for-profit organizations there was a connection that you had with people on a daily basis there was structure there was um uh processes and systems and so I had to develop all that myself, and that was that was really challenging. But you know, after the third year, it definitely felt like I'm more stabilised now. I diversified my business slightly, so as well as doing uh, writing for organisations like publications, I was writing for organisations. I was helping write people's websites, and you know, moving into copywriting became more sustainable. Uh, so that when I did write blogs and more journalistic articles, then it, it became more of a passion again. So it was really helpful. So in that time, I probably published about 700 articles, which was a one-way track to burnout. <laughs> it was really hard. Um, because, you know, the nature of self-employed work is that you you don't know when the next check, the next check or job is coming in. 
you know, especially if you're working on a per blog basis. So yeah, it was it was really hard. And then I realized that I started this group last year called Life After Total Set Recovery. And it's for people that are transitioning out. And there's now six hundred people in there. And I realized over the course of that time that you know, I could really help more people if I had the clinical skills to do that. And I could maybe even develop a program for it. And I saw so many people that were so disempowered that I was like, I need to do more. Like, you writing about things does have some change, does affect some change, but there's a capability to do so much more. So as my writing has taken on more of a social justice angle, you know, considering that, especially in America, you know, your skin colour really dictates whether or not you find recovery, and that's not right. Everybody deserves an opportunity for recovery. So it felt like a master's in social work would really help me to be able to affect more change on a macro and a micro level. And I applied to Portland State, and there was a one in three success rate, and I can't believe I got in. Everyone said that I'm the only one that's surprised. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's yeah, it's challenging. And, I, you know, technically we started last week, but we don't have classes until next week, and the textbooks that I'm reading, I'm like, whoa, <laughs> this is, this is going to be a challenge. But great, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it just ties into that, what we've been talking about, about becoming more and growing and just adding more like versions of yourself and keep growing. Yeah, I feel like recovery gives, has given me the confidence in my ability, you know, to be able to say, actually, yeah, I can do that. You know, whereas if you'd asked me in the first year of my recovery, can I see myself moving to America and becoming a social worker and having a private practice and changing the world I'd say hey, <laughs> and now I'm like yes <laughs> yeah I can yeah no it's awesome and I think having that open-minded and possibility when you're early in recovery is really good um, yeah. but like you mentioned about writing kind of 700 blog posts um, and being self-employed and working you know uh, towards burnout how do you manage that balance between the more, more, more part of you versus having boundaries yeah. and self-care and loving yourself? Um, I think that for me, and I think this is true for a lot of people with substance use disorder, is that they have to experience before they can um, <laughs> implement boundaries and structure. So, you know, I didn't see it was a problem until I burned out, you know, and then I realised, hang on a minute, this isn't sustainable. I need to make sure that I have, you know, what are the main stresses here? What is motivating me to work so hard? And what was motivating me was the fear of, of money, no money, you know. And, um, you know, so I developed a system whereby, you know, I could sell block packages, which I, would give me the financial security to know, well, I've got my mortgage and my insurance covered for next month. Imagine that, having to figure out, Oh, I have to pay for insurance. It's, it's insane. Huh? Um, you know, my insurance is actually probably a third of my mortgage payment. 
it's just it, I, I, it still hurts my head um, and that's not everything so yeah I I had to implement some structure I had to learn how to work to a schedule to use the active part of my brain at the best time to do the more challenging tasks and to do the more menial tasks when I'm more tired and uh, not work weekends and learn to say no to customers you know like if you're going to email me at nine o'clock at night I'm not responding you know and I, and I developed with, with a lawyer some contracts that actually stipulated this is when you can contact me this is when I'm going to respond all my boundaries and it works you know my a friend of mine Veronica Valley you might know her. She's a really well-known podcaster and um, recovery coach. She's a therapist in the UK, but she lives over here now. And she says, we treat, we tell people how to treat us. And she's absolutely right. You know, if I answer those emails at 9 o'clock at night, my clients are going to think I'm available 24 hours a day. And that's not okay. And, you know, it's, it's been really helpful for my peace of mind to know that. And what's interesting too is all this fear and worry was unnecessary because even when I thought I wasn't going to make it, a job came in. And that has shown me over the last four, nearly four years that when you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, you're living in your purpose in life, you will be provided for. And I would not call myself a religious person, but I do believe that the universe would provide some people. And that's what's happened for me. Yeah. No, awesome. Awesome. It sounds like such an amazing journey. And like you say, managing, managing that balance between faith and trust in yourself versus and boundaries to let the world know, you know, what interactions they can and can't have and what to expect from you and defining those yeah. expectations. Yeah. Which is really hard to do, I think, for people in recovery, because one of the skills that I've seen consistently that people lack is how to relate to one another, you know, and how to ask for your needs to be met. It's a really daunting thing to ask for, because many of us have lived in familial situations where, you know, a parent has substance use disorder, and there's been some dysfunction in the family unit. So... From a very young age, you've not developed that skill of being able to to articulate our needs. Um, so that's really hard. Um, and I think that's a really useful skill that I found through the process of recovery, particularly therapy. Yeah, no, awesome. awesome. And melody Yeah, no, excellent. And, um, yeah, I just wondered if you had any advice for the audience or anything else on your mind as we come kind of towards the end um just really words of encouragement that you know dream big because i believe that um people in recovery don't realize how capable they are you know and, and i don't want to overlook the inequity that exists within society that makes it harder for some people to prosper in life because that that really is true. I believe that my privilege has enabled me to succeed as much as I have. Um, it doesn't mean I haven't struggled, but I haven't struggled as much as people without that privilege. So I would say that to believe that, you know, you, you are capable and to also acknowledge 
within that capability your privilege. I think that's really important. You know, people say that we shouldn't bring social justice and politics into recovery, but if we overlook the inequities in recovery, then we're just using our privilege to deny those experiences. So, you know, we need to hear the voices of black and brown people and queer people, and we need to provide resources for those people too. Um, we need to not have just like this white-centric hetero recovery, which doesn't make it appealing or safe for some people. So I think that's really important too. Yeah, and having that diversity and, like you say, ability to support those people um, with, like you say, your blog, for example, anyone can read it. There's no prejudice uh, prejudice on your blog. It's just kind of your words and in, uh, information awesomeness that you put out there. Yeah, uh, and it's, it's also <laughs> a white person's perspective. You know, I might be queer, but it's all white. Um, so, you know, I could definitely do more. And that's a big reason why I'm doing my social work masters, so that I can be more equitable and inclusive. That's really important to me. Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's awesome. And, yeah, thanks very much for coming on. Did you have any final thoughts or words or anything you'd like to say to the audience or anywhere you'd like to send them or anything like that? Um, if they want to know more about my writing, you can find me on Liz Recovery Kitchen or just search my name, Olivia Penelli, and a lot of my blogs will come up. Um, I did have a podcast, which is still out there, um, called Breaking Free Your Recovery Your Way, and it talks a lot about these topics, although that's no longer um, active, um, but the, the recordings are still out there. Um, and just thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, no, it's amazing. Um, and to our audience, thanks for listening. I'll link to all of uh, your stuff below and make sure um, everyone can find it all. And, yeah, it's just been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you, especially on a Friday night. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, excellent. All right. Thanks, thanks so much.